you're listening to Market Scale. I'm your host, Sean Heath, and today I have a chance to talk to two rather interesting people from Matrix Analytics. First off, we have, man, I can never decide who to intro first. I'm going to go alphabetically. We have the founder and CMO, Aki Alzubaidi, and President Christine Spraker. Welcome. How are you today? Excellent. Doing Hi. excellent. Thanks How are you for doing? having us. I'm doing quite well. Thank you for asking. Now, I have to say, you work in one of those really smart sectors of the industry. So I'm very excited about this. I always love talking to people who are smarter than me. So let's start off and find out just how you got to be so smart. And Christine, if you would first give me your journey, how'd you wind up at Matrix Analytics? Sure, absolutely. Uh, well, my background has always been in uh, sales and business development. I started uh, in healthcare a long time ago. I've been with big corporations and was fortunate enough to meet Aki along the way. Uh, we teamed up because we saw a big gnarly problem that we wanted to attack and decided to create a software. And that's that's kind of how we got to where we are. Aki, how did you sort of really commit yourself to this idea and decide matrix analytics was something you absolutely had to do. I got pissed if I could be just brutally honest with you. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a physician and I had just got out of a fellowship and had started my first job. And, you know, I think when you train for so long and you, you know, uh, being a physician, you think that medicine is one way. And then, uh, when you, start to see the reality of what's happening in healthcare and in medicine. Um, sometimes you, you know, it, 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 there's certain things that just get to you and make it hard to sleep at night. And one of those things was uh, just a really young patient who had similarities to me. And, and, you know, we, he just kind of got lost in the whole big system. And so I was like, there just has to be a better way to fix this. And just trying to make sure that no other patient, like no patient really got left behind and no patient got lost. And that really was the motivation to, to start Matrix Analytics. You know, I've always thought that people who go into the medical profession and actually become doctors, the driving force in what I have seen is always some sort of moral, ethical, like you said, there's an anger. There's a focus, there's a drive in, look, here's a problem, and I don't think enough people are trying to fix it, and I'm going to focus on that. But then, and now I realize I should call you Dr. Al-Zubaydi, then, <laughs> then you step out of that physician's role, and you take all of the knowledge and all of the passion that you put into that, and you apply it to a problem that's some people would say is outside of your warehouse. I think that's inaccurate. I think that's you're exactly where you're supposed to be. This you have that skill. And do you find that that training, that sort of point of view really helps inform the way you attack these problems? Absolutely. I think that, um, you know, in terms of the, 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 there has to be a bridge between technology, healthcare, domain expertise, the problem. There's all everybody works in silos is what I found. Right. And no matter what it is. Uh, you know, there's a silo of even even the thumb doctor doesn't treat the pinky and the pinky doctor doesn't treat the thumb. Right. And then a person who's creating the EMR has no idea what the person who's doing the intake or scheduling what the person who's doing billing what the doctor has to do. There's just not a, a, a bridge between all these silos. 
And I think that it does take, you, you know, somebody who's pissed, who cares, who um, had their self-actualization goal is to fix things, right? And that's how they end up really being happy. And I think that's really what it was for me personally in terms of trying to become that bridge between all the silos. So humans, as a general rule, look for patterns. That's how we make sense of the world around us. And if you look at patterns long enough, you can determine trends and the direction things are going. And if you are focused enough and lucky enough, you can help sort of maybe steer those trends a little bit and focus them a little bit so they actually achieve a useful goal. What kind of trends have you seen recently in the industry that give you hope? And what other trends have you seen that you just think people just aren't really, they're missing the point? Having been in the industry for a long time, I would say it's really hard to watch a large company that has a ton of resources, uh, a ton of touch points, a lot of knowledge, really get caught up in what they think is best and not truly listening to the customer. That was always one of my biggest frustrations. I would hear feedback from the customers and, and try to tell the companies, this is what we need to do. This is what they're, what they want us to do. This is what they're asking for. And there's so much red tape that they weren't actually able to, to execute on it. So I think as more companies like ours are, are becoming uh, more available and able to offer solutions now at a more cost-effective uh, price, just because of the way technology is, we're able to listen to the customers. And I think we're starting to see a big trend towards the customer centric type of uh, product and company versus just this big, we're going to tell you what to do. And, and to expand on that too, the, the, the market is, is drastically different than it was even three years ago. And you, and you can see that because everything's mushrooming, right? Everybody has an idea. There's tons of startups. And what's really happening is, is that we're, we're, we're seeing, like, like she was talking about, a movement away from big corporate kind of solutions to, all right, well, here's, here's this small innovative vendor who can solve this particular use case. And then now the problem that I see is, is that there's too many vendors, right? There's now it's, it's, so like the, 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 the person who's in the hospital who's making decisions, now they have, you know, a thousand people who are requesting sales calls to tell them about their solution. And that's kind of overwhelming a little bit, I think, in terms of kind of what the problem is for how, what the trend is in terms of the market now. And so um, it, it really, you know, to solve the real healthcare problem and, and implementing technology, you know, in healthcare, it's really how do you solve, like how do you boil the ocean, right? And Watson's tried to boil the ocean, other big companies have tried to boil the ocean and they failed. Um, and so I think it's really up to companies like us and people like us and groups like us to figure out how to collaborate with partners who I think are either hospitals or other vendors, even big corporations, and just solve the problem, right? Like we gotta, we gotta start putting the patient first and putting the problem first to actually get to the solution. And, and I'd add too, the, the providers and the people who are actually caring for the patients because there's, they spend so much time on a daily basis doing uh, admin and, and data entry and extra clicks. You hear clicks all the time. They don't, they, they don't have the ability to give the type of care that they originally thought that they were gonna give when they went into training. And, and, and you know, for risk stratification, in terms of like AI and deep learning, I think that the market now, the trend is definitely going towards 
How do we decrease the administrative burden? How do we take the low-risk repetitive behavior in regards to patients and automate that so that a physician, so that a nurse practitioner, so that a nodule coordinator, so that somebody who's who has a, a title and training isn't just doing data entry, isn't just doing something that's at the, you know, Christine says it all the time, work at the top of your license, right? And so what I see now is, is that healthcare is starting to understand that we need machine automation. We need batching. We need segmentations of risk for patients. And we need to actually adopt that technology to be able to allow the humans to manage high-risk individuals and complex patients. Because those complex patients, you know, if, if they're spending an hour on that patient, they're spending an hour on the same patient who has no risk. Or and, really low or risk. Low risk. And, and the high-risk patient ends up slipping through the cracks, and that's where the bad outcomes come, and that's where we're, we're, we're wasting a lot of money and resources. You know, I don't think there's ever been anyone who's gone to medical school because they wanted to be an accountant. <laughs> <laughs> well, so this is the thing, right? And this is from Mark. So, you know, Mark Cuban is one of our lead investors, and I, 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 I wrote, it's a funny story, like we, we I would, people thought I was crazy. Every Saturday, I just looked up anything, any company that Mark Cuban had, and I found out their email structure, and I emailed Mark Cuban. Hey, I got an idea. I think I can solve lung cancer. Help me out. And so eventually he goes, wish I could help you. Uh, can't you find a local developer you trust? And I about, you know, went nuts on a Saturday morning, and then I just, it just motivated me, kept writing him, kept writing him, kept writing him. He eventually took some time and, and listened to the pitch. And his response was, that's research, not business. And what that meant is, is that you have to have a solution that makes money, that, so, that, that saves money, makes money, or is financially positive. And there's a market fit. And there's a market fit for it. If you don't, it's not a solution and it's not going to be able to be implemented. You have to be an accountant to be able to help people out. Academic you know nope, go right ahead. I say academic centers do all of this great research um, and, and have so much opportunity, but without partnering with industry and having the ability to execute um, outside of research, it just it's hard to make it a viable solution across the board. And and Aki, you mentioned something very interesting. You, you mentioned deep learning and that I think has the potential to be extremely serviceable. Revolutionary in the way that it can help physicians and healthcare providers focus on the things that they can actively do something about, as you said, and and be much more efficient, which can in, should logically increase positive outcomes. Tell me a little bit about how you see the application of deep learning and the growth of that sort of tool in the industry. Absolutely. So um, I think that. Right now, the problem is with the curated data sets. So uh, what that means is, is that everybody wants to own IP, right? And, and so a hospital, who owns that data? Who owns the outcome? So for deep learning, this is how it works, just on a simplified method, simplified kind of terms, right? I take an input, right? And I don't know if you guys have ever watched Silicon Valley, but you remember it's a hot dog or it's not a hot dog, right? So I have a picture, it's a hot dog. And then I know, I, I verify that it's a hot dog. I have another picture, it's not a hot dog. And I verify that it's not a hot dog. The input of the picture, that's the input. The output of the truth, that's the output. 
And in, and in healthcare, to get something that's meaningful, we have to have a lot of inputs. So for our use case that we first started with was pulmonary nodules. Are they cancer or are they not cancer? So we can get these inputs, right? Hey, here's an image. It's, it, it's, it's a nodule, right? But then the problem is, is getting the outputs, the ground truths, and getting the volume of ground truths to make deep learning meaningful. And right now, it's, 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 it's a, when I talked about silos, everybody's trying to solve the same problem in multiple silos where they're never going to have the volume to have a model that makes clinical impact. Because, you know, in, in terms of a human, they can look at a picture of a hot dog and know that it's a hot dog or not, right? So if you create deep learning or a radiomics or an image classifier for a hot dog, who cares? Humans are good at knowing if it's a hot dog or not a hot dog. You have to have a hundred thousand, a million for each different type of patient population or problem that has the right inputs with the right outputs. And so for, for me, what it is, is creating value of a product that allows the customer or the partner, right, to allow us to say, all right, here's an infrastructure where we're going to give you something for almost free, right? And at the end of the day, what we want to create is this symbiotic relationship between all of our hospitals and all of our partners where we can have enough inputs, have enough ground truths to where we can have clinically meaningful results and models and deep learning and AI that can solve any problem. And that's the only way that I see deep learning and AI actually being successful. And I think it's why you haven't seen the success in deep learning yet. Let me broaden the question or the sort of the field of inquiry. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm fluent in Spanish. I also speak Catalan. That's a romance based language. It's much easier for me to learn French, Portuguese, and Italian because I have that basis of a romance based language in Spanish. Is that concept something that can be applied to deep learning? If we can have a computer learn what is a cancer and what is not a cancer as far as a pulmonary nodule, could we then take, okay, now we have a basis of knowledge here and now we can figure out, is this leukemia or yeah. is this, is that, is that the way that, that we're going? Absolutely. And so like when, when we started out, we, you know, you, if you look at everything that we did at the very beginning was, is let's build a system that's generic enough to where let's figure out what the, the worst thing that, that humans manage, right? And the easiest thing to prove out. And for this case, we picked pulmonary nodules, right? But the system, the infrastructure that we built and that, you know, probably some other people have built can be applied to anything else, any disease state. You're absolutely correct in your analog with if you know Spanish, then it's easier to know French. If we know pulmonary nodules and we have the infrastructure and the solution for it, it can be applied to anything like heart, you know, heart attacks, stroke, diabetes, uh, other cancer states, everything. It, it, it's an approach. It's, it's a matter of having those inputs and the ground truths on the end. And then you can train any model with those variables. It's, it's just a matter of having the curated data set. It, and with Amazon AWS and with the other cloud-based servers that have deep learning uh, instances now, I mean, now you have an infinitely scalable solution that has the GPUs that you need to run this on any disease state, on every single hospital, and aggregate all of that data, the inputs, the outputs, everything, to get to meaningful clinical impact. It's, it's there. Like, the technology is there. The problem isn't with the technology is there. 
The problem is, is figuring out how you implement the technology into healthcare. And in helping build sort of that AI, I, I want to go back to, uh, there's an article that I read in the past couple of months, and the premise was that we have more brain power on the planet at this point than has ever existed in human history. And you mentioned earlier about listening to the customer, listening to the patients and getting information from them. Do you feel that that sort of openness to listen to quote unquote non-professionals with regard to this learning will help accelerate the speed at which it can learn and assimilate information? I, I think it's easy to assume we all know the answers, right? You, you, you think you have a solution and so you're going to build something around it. And we actually did that early on. We, we built something that we thought was utopia and we were going to solve lung cancer and we were going to you know, save hundreds of thousands of lives. And we took it to some customers and they said, we're never going to do this. This disrupts our workflow. And we learned a really good lesson early on. We have to listen. We can't just assume that we know the answer. And so by listening to our customers daily, I mean, we, we, you should see all the input that we get and we constantly iterate and we improve upon what we have because of their feedback. I think that that's the only way that we're going to be able to create solutions that one, people are willing to use and two, that are actually effective. And, and, and so when we, have a, we have a saying about sea change. And, and so it's, it really, it takes truths and experience mixed with humility and grit to achieve a goal and solve a problem. And so the way that sea change happens is exactly how you stated. You listen, you listen and you have to determine what is good information, what's not good information, and you have to then iterate and continue to learn. It's always learning. And that's the way that you end up solving big problems, I think, and we think. And finishing up with that, the information that you get from listening really doesn't serve you any purpose if you don't put in the energy to think about it and process it. And as you said, to iterate. So that obviously forces you to be a thought leader. It's not really a conscious choice you made. You made the choice to consider the information and to think about it, but that just sort of automatically puts you in a position of being a thought leader. As someone who's on the thinking edge in this industry, tell me a thing or two that you see that is pretty much inevitable as far as evolution and growth within this space. I think that it's inevitable that deep learning and AI, I think that, I think it's, I think it's going to happen faster than people think. Um, we're close. I think everybody's close. And I think that healthcare is going to end up moving to self-service a la carte where, you know, I don't know who that, who, who it's going to be delivered by, but you, when you get sick, I think you're going to go on your computer and it's going to end up being a self-service a la carte where it's part machine, part human, everything's segmented out. Order. There's going to be in part brick and mortar. And that, mar and, and, and that shift is inevitable. I think within two to five years, it's happening. Well, I have to say, I'm a big fan of sci-fi, but <laughs> I'm, even, I'm even a bigger fan of when it comes to today's actuality and reality 
and science and technology and health and people who think and apply their training to actually solve something that that matters, something that has an impact. And today I've had the pleasure of having a conversation with Christine Spraker, the president for Matrix Analytics and Dr. Aki Alzubadi, the founder and CMO of Matrix Analytics. Thank you so much for taking the time today. I really have learned a lot and I always enjoy that. Thank you so much for having us. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Sean. Have a fantastic day and I hope to talk to you again soon. Likewise. Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast. If you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, go to marketscale.com industries. And if you have a chance, subscribe to the MarketScale publications for the latest articles, videos, and podcasts from your favorite industries.